Let me start by asking you a question. Are you in training at the moment? Are you in training? For some of you, it might be an easy answer. Yes, you're training for a half marathon, a full marathon, a triathlon. Um, for some of us, we might be in training, but not for something athletic. Uh, we'll be investing our time, our skill, our money, our energy into improving in, in another area, uh, perhaps still health. We're trying to recalibrate our diets, cut down on sugar, get more sleep, reduce our blood pressure, drive less, walk more. Or perhaps professionally, we're on the path to promotion, we're studying for a master's, uh, we're putting in the extra hours to impress a boss. Or we might be trying to improve ourselves, uh, switch off the screens, learn a new skill, ring your grand more often, uh, reinvest in an old friendship, or just become a tidier, more patient, kinder kind of person. Or it could be a cause, eating less meat, cutting down on plastic packaging, engaging more politically. So are you in training at the moment? Ploughing your time, skill, money and energy into improving in something. Paul, the writer of this letter, says you should be. You should be in training. For what? Verse 8, for godliness. We as Christians should be in training for godliness. Paul spends much of his time in this first letter to Timothy um, describing what, what the church that Timothy's leading, the church in Ephesus, ought to look like. But his focus in this passage that we've just read isn't so much on the Ephesian church in general, but more on its leader, on Timothy, and what he, and indeed any gospel teacher, should be like. Um, here, according to verse 6, um, Paul says, here is what a good minister of Christ Jesus should look like. So we're going to see what as we look at verses 6 to 9, and then we'll see two hows as we look at verses 10 to 16, one sort of private and one more public. So first of all, what should a good gospel teacher be like? Probably see it coming. A good gospel teacher is in training for godliness. A good gospel teacher is in training, and they're in training for godliness. The um, crux of these verses uh, lies in verse 7, in the contrast. Um, so Paul begins with a command. Uh, he says, verse 7, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Uh, those of us who were here a few weeks ago uh, may remember that there were various voices around the church of Ephesus at that time, saying various different things. And if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 3, um, Paul writes, Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. And Paul tells Timothy here in chapter 4, verse 7, to have none of what they're saying. To have none of it. He doesn't say disregard, ignore, don't pay attention to these things. He says, have nothing to do with them. Timothy is not to believe, entertain, or even tolerate such teaching. Get as far away as you can, Timothy. Make the dividing line between you and this false teaching very clear. Have nothing to do with it. Why the big deal? We're a broad church, Timothy might have replied. Everyone's different. We want, we want to be welcoming and open. And we're a small church. You can't really afford to be driving wedges between people. But Paul says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. And he doesn't tell us here the content 
of this teaching. But, but he does tell us that it's myths, it's not true. It's godless, pagan in origin, irreligious, profane. And it's foolish and, and insignificant. No more than old wives' tales. So avoid them, says Paul. Make clear that there's no place in your church for this silly pagan talk. But this isn't just a negative command, a don't. There's also a positive, a do. Rather, verse 7, train yourself to be godly. Instead of flapping around trying to keep everyone happy, Timothy, even though you know full well some people are spouting rubbish and others are just going along with it and believing it, get in training, Timothy. This, Timothy, is where you should spend your time, skill, money and energy. Here is where you should be exerting yourself. Not in people-pleasing and bridge-taping up. You need to get in training. In training for godliness. Now, physical training, says Paul in verse 8, is of some value. If you want to get fit, if you want to look after the body that God has given you into old age, then physical training is of real value. Apparently, um, a typical week's training for uh, Mo Farah, the 10,000-metre runner, consists of running up to 135 miles per week, with no rest days, and two sessions every day but Sunday. 135 miles per week, apparently. But it enabled him to run 5k in under 13 minutes. Physical training is of real value. But godliness, verse 8, godliness has value for all things. It holds promise both for the present life and the life to come. And there's the difference. Physical training is of great value for this life. But no matter how fit you are, no matter how well you look after your body, no matter how hard you train, your body will one day cease to work, and your training will count for nothing then. A heart that no longer beats can't have a resting heart rate of below 60 beats per minute. But godliness, well, says Paul, what you invest in growing godliness now, you'll be reaping the benefits of for all eternity, Timothy. What you sow in growing in godliness now, you will reap in the new creation. So physical training is of real value. We rightly praise it. We hold it highly in our society. And many of us probably ought to do quite a bit more of it. So I certainly should. But the benefits it brings do not compare to the benefits of spiritual training. Training in godliness. They don't even come close. It'd be like comparing a scoop of uh, Mr. Whippy vanilla ice cream to a tub of Ben and Jerry's chocolate chip cookie dough. Not even worth comparing. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Paul emphasises in verse 9. This matters, Timothy. Listen up. Now, of course, this um, letter is addressed to a church leader. So the, kind of the first line of application must be to church leaders and to us as we sit under our leaders. And so we, we should ask ourselves, as Paul asked of Timothy, do we have leaders who are in training? And is it godliness that they're in training for? Or are they training their bodies and minds only in worldly ways? I think at Morden Road, we're, we're blessed that we do have leaders who are training for godliness. So then let's encourage them to keep going, 
keep their eyes fixed on that goal, to keep training for the right thing, for godliness. But what about us? I think we can still apply it directly to ourselves. Are we in training? And is it godliness that we're in training for? And if we're training for other things too, things that are good, of some value, physical training, as we should be, are we getting the balance right? Do we see how infinitely greater the benefits of training in godliness are? And that, does that affect how we plan our training schedule? How we carve out our time, our skill, what we do with our money and our energy? Get training, says Paul. Training for godliness. So we've seen what a good gospel teacher should be doing. Next we see how. And first, in private. Um, Labour and strive in God's strength. Verse 10. Labour and strive in God's strength. The what, train for godliness. The how, labour and strive in God's strength. Now, Paul isn't just advising Timothy from the other side of the barrier here like the kind of unfit PE teacher wrapped up in their layers on a chilly February morning, barking instructions at the boys on the rugby field. No, Paul is in training too. He says in verse 10, that's why we labour and strive. And that word strive was actually often used in athletic contexts. So Paul, like Timothy, was toiling and struggling as he himself trained for godliness too. And so this isn't like an automated app telling you what you need to do. We've got Paul here, the personal trainer, by Timothy's side, running 8, 10, 12, 16 miles a week with him as he trains for the half marathon. And it won't be easy, says Paul. It will be a labour. It will take striving. Like Mo Farah, running day after day, double sessions every day but Sunday. Mo Farah, for whom a four-mile run is just a warm-up. Training for godliness will be a labour. It will take striving. It won't be easy. And don't we hang our heads in despair when we hear of a training regime like Mo Farah's. We know we'll fall so far short. It hardly feels worth getting off the sofa and getting our running kit on. Perhaps that's how Timothy felt as he glanced over at the spiritual giant Paul training in the lane next to him. I could never achieve anything like that. I could never be as godly as Paul the Apostle. But Paul doesn't finish his paragraph here. In verse 10 he goes on. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. Who does Paul want Timothy to focus on here? Who does he want Timothy to have fixed in his mind? Is it Paul, running in the lane next to him? Other Christians on the treadmills all around him? Is it Timothy himself, focusing on the great things, the great medals, the great glories he's capable of? No. Paul wants Timothy to focus here on Jesus. On the real, solid, confident hope that he has in the living God. The God who is alive, not dead. And the God who promises eternal life to us, in verse 8. The God who is our saviour, whose offer of salvation is open to all. 
1 Timothy 2, verse 4. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and whose offer of salvation is effective for all those who believe. So this is a far cry from the, come on, you can do it. Step up, be bold, be brave, keep going, you can do it. Kind of pep talk that I so often give myself. And that I suspect Timothy might have uh, been starting to give himself here too. It's not inner strength, inner motivation, or even just rigid self-discipline that Paul wants Timothy to rely on as he trains for godliness. It's Jesus. Focus on Jesus, Timothy, says Paul. Look at him. Be more specific, Paul. Well, Paul wants Timothy to look at who Jesus is, the living God, the saviour, what Jesus has done for him, saved him, and what Jesus has given him, a solid hope in the life to come. Jesus is Paul's source of motivation and strength as he trains. And he's the source of motivation and strength that Paul holds out to Timothy. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter writes, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him. It's all about Jesus, Timothy. You're not going to get anywhere in your training if you forget that. You see, God sets the target, but he also buys the gym membership. He kits us out with the best running shoes. He comes out and runs with us every day, pouring water down our throats when we're too parched to carry on. We have everything we need for a godly life, wrote Peter, through Jesus. What a relief that must have been for Timothy to hear that. The strength, the resolve, the determination didn't need to all come from him. And I wonder, don't we, don't we so often make those two same mistakes ourselves? And we, we forget that training for godliness takes labour and striving. And we try to train for godliness in our own strength. Let me give a couple of examples. I mean, first, we forget that training for godliness takes labour and striving, meaning that we either don't labour and strive, or we become discouraged when we do work hard, but we struggle. I think of a Christian who's training for something else. Something physical, perhaps, a health thing, a career, a cause, self-improvement. Good things, no doubt. And like the dedicated half-marathon runner, they've, they've got the right kit. They're down at the gym several times a week, out running once, twice, every weekend. But it's a while since they've made it to home group midweek. They're not great at coming to church in the evening or, or catching up on the sermon they've missed when they've had a, a run that morning. They're in training, but not for godliness. Or the Christian who's overburdened with service. They've said yes to one, two, three too many things over the last year or so. And life just feels like a big juggling act. Work, church, friends, kids. But they don't want to let anyone down. They know things are squeezed, people are pressured. They're scared about what will happen if they pull out now. They're training for godliness. I'm not sure they're training in God's strength. What does a good minister of Christ Jesus look like? They're training for godliness. How do they do that? Well, in private, they labour and strive in God's strength. And in public, they give themselves wholly to godly living and leading. 
verses 11 to 16. They give themselves wholly to godly living and leading. For a personal letter that's um, been relatively sparse so far in the second person address, uh, Paul starts laying on the use and the commands fairly heavily in um, these verses. <laughs> but before we dig in, let's just for a moment remember Timothy's context. So we saw back in 1 verse 3 and 4, uh, feel free to flick there again. Um, he's been left in Ephesus by Paul to lead the church there. He's young and inexperienced, almost certainly under 40. And there are plenty of older, wiser voices around with pretty strong ideas. And there's a fair amount of disorder we can see from chapter 2 and chapter 5 uh, in the way that the church is operating, if not downright sinfulness. And so be bold, instructs Paul. Be confident. You know the gospel. Go and preach it. I've put you in charge. Go and show them who's boss. Don't give a fig what anyone else thinks. Except that isn't what Paul says here, is it? Might be what I would say. Paul, verse 12, set an example for the believers. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This is what you're to do. Timothy, in light of all this, you're to set an example. Well, Timothy can throw his leadership manual in the bin because Paul's instruction is not to assert his authority, to make, pe- make sure people know their places, to enforce his will, to turn on the charm or the fury as the situation requires. It's simply to set an example in the way he speaks, his public teaching, his private conversations, in his conduct, his manner and behaviour with people, in the way he loves people and the way he loves God, in the strength and humility of his faith, and in the purity of his heart, his words, and his actions. Set an example for the believers, Timothy, if you want to have an impact on your church. Quiet, godly living and leading is how Timothy is to demonstrate his godly training in the public arena. And it's what will convince Timothy's hearers to listen to him and to listen to God through him. And it feels so counterintuitive. It's so different to what our world often says about how to lead well, how to make an impact, how to change a company, a society, a nation. (coughs) The um, early episodes of uh, Series 2 of The Crown, I don't know if any of you uh, watched it, um, they tell the story of um, Anthony Eden, short-lived Prime Minister, who for many years was um, in the shadow of Winston Churchill, finally wrestled the leadership out of Churchill's hands. He made some poor decisions, the Suez Crisis happened, And before he knew it, he was replaced by Macmillan. And there's a brilliant scene in um, episode three where the Queen kind of half upbraids and half commiserates with him as he resigns. And she says, I suppose it's only natural that ambitious men, that driven men, want to go down in history. Or make history by going down. Eden jokingly replies. Quiet, godly living and leading is the opposite of the leadership our world often would recommend. Yet it's exactly what will save Timothy's hearers, says Paul in verse 16. Now, I've called this section how Timothy um, is to train for godliness in public. But I think we can be fairly confident from what we read in verses 6 to 10 and from the personal commands throughout the letter 
that Paul's interested in Timothy's private, personal life here, as well as his public ministry. Or even, he's interested in Timothy's private, personal life because he's interested in his public ministry. And the two things go hand in hand. In verse 16, Paul tells Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine closely. Not being cowed by his youth, verse 12. Remembering his past, verse 14. Making progress in his godliness, verse 15. So that he may save himself as well as his hearers, verse 16. This watching of his life and doctrine surely must begin in the study, on his knees, in private contemplation, before God his Father. But these commands mustn't end in the study. Timothy isn't to head off to a monastery for a life of solitude, study and service. No, the believers are to see Timothy's love, his faith, his purity. They're to benefit from the gift that was given to him in verse 14. They're to see his progress in verse 15. Not that Timothy is to flaunt his growth in godliness before the church for people to admire. But more, that Christians grow through their leaders as much by the lives they model as by the words they preach. Let me say that again, because I think it's one of the most important points in this passage, and one which I think we undervalue in the church today. We grow as Christians as much through watching our leaders' lives as through listening to their sermons. So the first step for Timothy in living out his training in godliness is to set an example to the believers of what it looks like to labour, strive, and grow in godliness. Now, of course, if Timothy's life were not an example, not marked by integrity, by love, faith, and purity, he might not find much of an audience for his sermons. But, as a leader of integrity, he's training for godliness, and a living example of what he's teaching, Timothy must then teach well too. Um, You might read verses like these and initially think it sounds like a bit of an easy way out. No more difficult conversations and confrontations. No more tough evangelism. No more hard work with hard people. No more getting your hands dirty in ministry. Just live a quiet, godly life. It's also hope for the best that people will pick it up. But no. Paul says that Timothy must teach too. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Verse 13. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Timothy wants his hearers to be saved. He has to teach them. And he has to teach them the right things, the gospel, the things in this letter. And in both his godly living and his godly teaching, he must be utterly wholehearted. You can just see from the strength of the verbs that Paul uses. Verse 13, devote yourself. Verse 14, do not neglect. Verse 15, be diligent. Verse 15, again, give yourself wholly. Verse 16, watch closely. Persevere. Timothy must be wholehearted in his godly living and leading. It may not be all that hard to knock out a good sermon fairly regularly, Timothy, says Paul. But this, this will be harder. Devoting yourself to godly living and to faithful teaching, day in, day out. A good minister of Christ Jesus should be in training for godliness. How? In private, they labour and strive in God's strength. In public, they give themselves wholly to godly living and leading. 
tall order? Well, fortunately, where we go, Jesus has already gone before us. Jesus, more than anyone else who has ever lived, laboured and strived in God's strength and gave himself wholly to godly living and leading. Just consider for a moment his personal godliness, his utter reliance on his Father for strength, as he slipped off frequently to pray by himself, often long before his friends and followers had even gotten out of bed, or as he resisted the temptations of the devil in the wilderness by relying on the words of Scripture. And the way he treated people, his conduct, often firm, sometimes confrontational, but always loving, fair, humble, never tainted by pride or jealousy. Or how he handled himself as he suffered, at weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, sweating blood in Gethsemane, staying almost silent in his corrupt trial. And he commanded his followers to do the same as they sought to lead people. In Mark 10, verses 42 onwards, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So Paul's instructions here, very similar to what Jesus himself commanded. But fortunately, Jesus didn't just command it and provide an example of it. He didn't just do it to show us. He did it for us. You probably know that passage in Mark 10, the next thing he says, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to, serve, uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has done it for us, as well as setting an example and commanding us to follow. So we don't need to give up when we let ourselves down in our training for godliness. And we don't need to reach new heights of spiritual bests every month to keep motivated. We don't need to be at the top of our spiritual game at all times. It's okay when we make mistakes, when we sin, when we slip up. Because Jesus has done it for us. Our salvation doesn't depend on our success in training for godliness. In verse 10, it simply depends on whether we have believed the Saviour. So remembering that this applies first and foremost to Christian leaders, as we draw near to an end, um, let me ask you, which teachers do you listen to? Which spiritual leaders do you look up to? And what do you know about those people? The leader may be able to um, knock out good sermons pretty regularly. They may um, be good at keeping their blogs up to date, riding the crest of current evangelical fashions. They may even write great inspiring books. But what do you know of their actual lives? What do you see of their personal godliness? The answer is very little or nothing. And just be careful. Because the measure here, Paul says, is that a good gospel teacher is someone training for godliness, labouring and striving in God's strength, giving themselves wholly to godly living and leading. And how can you know whether they're doing that? The only thing you see them lead is their internet following. And the flip side of that, don't underestimate those you do see in Rome. 
those who teach you regularly, and you live out their training in godliness before your eyes. Better a basic sermon from someone that you know loves Jesus, because you see it in them, than the most amazing sermon from someone you know nothing about. Your favourite pastor should be the pastor of your local church, the one that you know, and the one that knows you. We used to find it reassuring. Um, before I had children, occasionally seeing Dan, um, <laughs> I have to have words with his children. I, I can show you. I do. All the more reassuring, now I have, I have my own children. Your favourite pastor should be the one who knows you and the one that you know. And as well as looking for leaders who do it, we should give ourselves wholly to training in godliness, to labouring and striving in God's strength and to giving ourselves to godly living and leading. What could that look like for us in the week ahead? Well, let's consider for a moment the person who's been a Christian for a long time, and perhaps lost the discipline of examining themselves for sin, or maybe never really had that discipline. They've always been a Christian, they were always a good kid, did well, and it kind of bred complacency in them. And they're just beginning to realise now how sinful they are. And so they start to examine themselves daily against God's word, bringing what they find to God in repentance and by his power and by his spirit, giving their hearts a spring spring clean, training themselves for godliness. Or perhaps the Christian who's so disciplined and diligent, faithful in quiet times and in church attendance, Yet, quite a lot of the time, it's sort of going through the motions. By mid-morning, they can't remember what they read in the Bible that morning. By mid-afternoon, they can't remember the sermon they heard that Sunday. And so they start to pay attention a bit more, to to really listen to God when they're listening to the Bible. Thinking, praying, trying to hear what God's saying to them, rather than just going through the motions. Being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. Training themselves. For godliness. What are you training for? Are you training for godliness? And are you doing it from Jesus' strength? Knowing he's already done it for you. Let's pause for a moment. And then I'll pray. Father, the the bar here is high. Help us to understand it rightly. Help us not to lose sight of you as we plough ourselves into training just for other things. But help us also not to be training for godliness in our own strength, by our own power, as if we could impress you with how well we can do. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's already done it all for us. Thank you that we're saved simply by believing in him. Thank you for the pattern that he sets us. The pattern we see in Paul of labouring and striving, of giving ourselves wholly to godly living and teaching. Help us to follow that pattern. We pray for our leaders, particularly Dan, Dave, our elders, We pray that they will continue training for godliness 
in Christ's strength. Help us to encourage them as they do that. Amen.